You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And in this episode, we hear from Danielle Frank, Hoopa tribal member and Native youth activist. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thank you for being with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? We do Danielle Holiet, Hosaha not Holiet. Medali nahwe, tsinaldi nahwe, hontanante nahwe, hawanka chink suchtai. Hello, my name is Danielle Frank. My hoopa name is Hosahona, and I'm from the villages of Medelding, Tewinalding, and Hontanating along the Hoopa and Yurok in reservations in Northern California. And your tribes originate in the areas known to settlers as the Trinity and Klamath River Basins? The Trinity and then one on the Klamath. Thanks for clarifying. So can you tell us more about yourself and about your work? I am a Hoopa tribal member and I also have Yurok and Karuk ancestry. Um, I'm the youth coordinator for Save California Salmon, as well as Miss Natinahue for the Hoopa tribe. I'm 19. I've been doing this work for almost my whole life. I can remember being seven years old, sitting in conference rooms where people were signing papers. And all I really understood is that we were there to make sure that nobody stole our river. And it's definitely kind of evolved from there. I grew up on the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation, and I didn't leave until just a few days before college. The cultural significance that the Trinity and Klamath Rivers have to my people is what got me into this work in the first place. And it's definitely what keeps me here. Our cultures are very river-based. Almost everything that we rely on that makes us who we are come directly from the Trinity and Klamath Rivers. And as I got older, I definitely understood that more. And so I evolved my work around making sure that our cultural needs are always met and that no policy is going to take them from us and no diversion is going to make it so that our seventh generation doesn't know who they are. The work that I do is very important to me. It's as personal as it gets. Every day I do my best to make sure that we are going to have the resources we need to be who we are for the rest of my life and then hopefully the rest of my grandchild's life and so on and so forth. A little about me, I graduated from Hoopa Valley High School in 2021, and I moved to Sacramento to go to cosmetology school, which didn't exactly fit into my life goals. It was more of a personal experience for me. While in Sacramento, I worked alongside the Assembly Board of California, specifically Assemblymember James Ramos, on a few things, one being AB 2022. I also worked with the State Water Resources Control Board. I was able to testify at the EPA building in Sacramento. I worked with a few tribes in the area, specifically Shingle Springs Rancheria, doing some presentations for their interns, holding press conferences regarding the Delta Conveyance Project. After a little over a year in Sacramento, I returned to Humboldt County, where I'm currently at. Uh, on the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation. I'm going to College of the Redwoods in Eureka, California, where I will, after finishing transferring to UC Davis, I am double majoring in 
political science with a focus in tribal law and environmental science and double minoring in legal studies and communications. I do a little bit of everything that comes with Save California Salmon, which I am very happy and fortunate to be able to do. Uh, My work consists of about three different focuses, youth work, policy work, and then education. The youth work that I do, that is everything from the Trinity River cleanup that I help host every year that I brought back as an intern for SES to the Rios to Rivers kayaking exchange that I was able to be part of in July. It was the Paddle Tribal Waters Program where I, alongside many other Native youth from the Klamath River Basin specifically, were training to be the first cohort to descend the Klamath River when the dams come down, which is going to be a historical moment for our people. It was an amazing experience to be able to not only train on a kayak on one of my home rivers, but also help Asia Wilson with some curriculum that we developed surrounding traditional and ecological knowledge. I do a ton of raft trips with youth, just helping get those healthy relationships with our water on the Klamath and Trinity Rivers, also on the American near the Sacramento, helping Indigenous youth get that relationship with the water and also get to experience the water in a way that might be too expensive for them otherwise if we weren't able to provide that. And then I do a lot of work with the interns that we have at Save California Salmon. I started as an intern, and so I do help some of the interns with their projects. I also do a lot of the press articles and quotes for Save California Salmon, especially when it comes from an Indigenous youth perspective. Another aspect of my work is the education work that I do. This involves the curriculums that we've built in Save California Salmon various class visits for many reasons, and then the cultural work that I kind of help implement at some of our summer camps, like the bear grass classes that I have and the weaving experiences that I'm able to help share with young Native youth. The last aspect of my job is the policy work that I'm really involved in. This is something that I've been doing since before Save California Salmon that one of my mentors, Margot Robbins, who is now the head of cultural fire management and was then the director of Indian education. She introduced me to policy work regarding what was called an LNG pipeline in Southern Oregon. And I have become very involved since then. Today, my policy work looks like sitting alongside the assembly members of California, talking about bills that are going to affect native people, also working with the water board giving testimony on why some policies aren't fair for Native communities, and also stressing the fact that we need to make sure our communities are very involved in these fights and tribal consultation needs to be more meaningful than just a mass text to every tribe in California that this meeting is happening. And that's where I focus most of my energy. Thanks for sharing that, Danielle. It's incredible you wear so many hats. I'm also curious if you can elaborate on your role as Miss Natanahoy. Okay, so yeah, I am currently Miss Natanahoy of the Hoopa Valley Tribe. Miss Natanahoy is a position that is kind of one through the Hoopa Tribe. We have a big Sovereign's Day celebration, usually the weekend of 
August 15th is the date that we got our sovereignty and were declared our own tribe. That weekend was around the time that the Yurok and Hoopa reservations were finally recognized as two different tribes and two different reservations. So that's a really special time for my people. And during our Sovereign's Day celebration, Miss Natinahue gives a talent to be performed in front of the community. Mine was public speaking, which is something that I find myself to be very talented at. And then a interview with the people who have been Miss Natinahue in the past. And so Miss Natinahue, the title means to be a woman in the community that young women can look up to, someone who is going to take a stand for their tribe, have conversations that need to be had, and kind of just be a leader for young Native women. And so this year I did apply and I did my process and was crowned Miss Natinahue for 2022. Um, I am using that platform to help restart the Youth Council for the Hoopa Valley Tribe in hopes that this Youth Council will have the power to lobby our actual council along with other organizations and hopefully the Assembly Board of California and the Water Board, people who need to be lobbied to remember that Native youth exist and that we have a say in these fights. I love that. Thanks for explaining. Your work is so expansive. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as a young person coming into this work? So my interest in this work stems from where I come from and who I am. As a Hoopa and Yurok Native person, I rely almost solely on the river to know who I am and to gather the materials that help me remember that. And so my interest stems from my family. I was seven years old when my father took me to Salem, Oregon to witness a signing of papers regarding the removal of the Klamath Dams. And I can remember knowing that I was going because bad people were trying to take away our river and I didn't want that to happen. My nickname on the res was Ducky and kind of still is to this day, even though I'm an adult, because I felt a connection to the river. Even when I was young, I never wanted to leave the water. I always wanted to be next to the bank. And knowing that that was in jeopardy, even as a child, I wanted to be involved. And then a few years later, I think I was around 11 or 12, when I met Margot Robbins, one of my longtime mentors. She helped me understand how I could fight some of these things that were happening, and she helped me understand policy and gave me my first introduction into public speaking. This was around the same time that I began to understand where most of our regalia comes from and our basket materials and the boat dance and the things that that river gives me that are more than just recreation. And Margot took me to a panel for Native youth in Portland, Oregon when I was in the eighth grade. It was regarding a liquid natural gas pipeline that was going to be put through Native American cemeteries and Native American sacred spaces and do really bad damage to some of the ecosystems and water. So I went and spoke in front of maybe about 400 people for the first time and definitely got out of my comfort zone, but realized how much of an impact my voice could make. And from there, I went to high school to co-found the Hoopa Valley High School Water Protectors Club alongside Margot, where we discussed water board meetings and 
tried to elevate youth voices, especially Native youth voices who were students of Hoopa Valley High School. We went to water board meetings and actually demanded that we get hearings closer to our communities because the hearings that were happening in Sacramento in the middle of a day were not accessible for our low-income communities. It was not possible for us to drive a 10-hour round trip to go make a two-minute testimony and afford a hotel room. That was just not something that was available to us. So while we might have had the invite to be in those spaces, barely, it wasn't accessible. And as students of the Hoopa Valley High School Water Protectors Club, we actually got granted our ask and were given meetings in Redding, California, which were only about two hours away from our reservation, which was a huge win for us. And we were able to help organize one of those hearings where nine tribes showed up and hundreds of people. There was prayer, there was song, people were outside because it was so full. And that was the first time that I really seen how much of an impact youth voices can make in this world that led into the Yo Cali Fellowship that I did right after high school through Safe California Salmon, led into meeting Regina Chikazola, the executive director of SCS, who is now my boss and a friend. And it really started my career. And I'm now currently the youth coordinator of Safe California Salmon, which is kind of one of my dream positions. I have been super involved in environmental justice for as long as I can remember. And this position is allowing me to do more. It's allowing me to be involved in Native justice and becoming a person that I want, that I could have looked up to and that could have helped me is one of my goals and definitely being able to provide all of these experience for the youth in my community through my position at Save California Salmon is life-changing for me. That's kind of how I became involved and how I ended up here. Yeah, so it sounds like you've been at it for a long time. I think you mentioned that you started around the age of seven. We've interviewed other tribal members on the Klamath and Trinity, but I think you're the youngest that we've interviewed for the podcast. So I'm hoping you can paint a picture of what was happening with the rivers through your lens as a child and young adult. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I'm 19 years old and the fight for the Klamath Dam removal started the year before I was even born. So um, it definitely comes through a different lens from me, from my father and from the elders in my community who've been involved in this fight. They speak of a time where our rivers were plentiful. We had an abundance of resources. We didn't have to fight for our main cultural lifeline. It was right there. And through my lifetime, I've never seen that. Maybe I have, but I don't remember. My whole life, all I've ever known is that the Klamath and Trinity were hurting, that the lifeline that made us who we are isn't healthy and that people want to destroy it. And so I listen to these stories of these elders and my father and people that have been gone for a while now telling these stories of a time where we were able to be who we are without a fight. And unfortunately, that's never been something that I've witnessed. Throughout my life, all I can remember is being young you know, going swimming and knowing that that place felt like home, knowing that being in that water and surrounded by 
the sand and the rocks and the willows, something about that place just made me feel welcome. And like I was sitting with my great grandma. And so as I got older, it got worse. Every summer we got the notices that the river was full of blue-green algae and it wasn't safe for us to really swim in because ingesting that water could lead to sickness and in rare cases, even death. And so the stories that I have of that river are not being able to use it. The stories I have of that river are loving it so much that it hurts, yet watching it die in front of my eyes. And unfortunately, that's still the case. You know, we have to fight these diversions. We have to fight these dams. We have to fight all of these greedy corporations. And then we win. And then we have to fight again because they only have to win once where we have to win every single time. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that if it continues in the way that it's been the last decade of my life, my kids will never have the stories, even I do, of feeling at home in that place that was meant for them. In case listeners haven't caught up on the other episodes, where's all the water going? A lot of the water that's diverted from the Trinity goes to private agriculture. Big ag is a serious issue. There is no reason that some of our biggest farms need to be in the middle of a desert. A lot of the water that gets diverted from the Trinity goes into the pockets of private farmers, and they buy so much of the water that only a small percentage goes to communities who actually need clean drinking water and showering water. That's something that we can all agree on. Everybody needs clean water. We have to change the way that agriculture is being implemented in America right now. The way that we are destroying our waterways is not sustainable. And that's something that's hurting my homelands the most. Big corporations buying that water, they are putting a monetary value on our cultural identity. And that's something that I have a huge issue with. And I know many others do too. And specifically that water's going into the Central Valley Project. So you're still young yourself, but why is it important to you that youth become involved in activism and water protection? There are many reasons why youth voices are instrumental in these fights. A main example I talked about earlier, the Hoopa Valley High School Water Protectors Club was able to demand that these meetings be more accessible to our communities. And we got that. And that was something that no one had ever been able to do. That's a prime example of how impactful youth voices can be. I also think it's very important that youth be involved because we are the future. Seven generations is how far we need to be thinking. And so the closest people to our next generation is us, is the youth, the teenagers, the kids. And so for us to be involved in these fights, it's instrumental in making sure that we'll have what we need because climate change isn't something of the future. It's something that's happening right now. And so if we're not involved in these conversations right now, our voices might not ever get heard. And this is going to affect our life more than anybody else. That's the reason that it's most important. And then one thing that I haven't really ever talked about publicly is how Much advocacy helped me figure out how to use my voice. I wasn't always a super outgoing kid. And then I realized that somebody had to speak up for these issues or nobody was going to, at least no kid was. And so I did. 
You know, America was founded on the genocide and murder of my people. Almost every system in America was built on the erasure of who I am. And so advocacy helped me find a way to use my voice in a way that can be world changing. I was never super comfortable in front of a lot of people. And recently I was in Vogue magazine. That was never something that I thought possible for myself. It was never something that I thought I would be comfortable with trying to change the minds of some of the most influential people in our state. But here I am doing it on the daily. Growing up where I did on the Hoopa Reservation, it's not always common that someone is fighting for something better. And so I learned to do that. I learned to always fight for something better. And I wouldn't have done that without being involved in advocacy. So I think that not only is it important for the movement that youth be involved, but I think it's important for youth to be involved in the movement because of what it can do for them. Activism can provide a lot for youth. It can definitely help you find where you belong in this world, what you care the most about, and how to say that, how to get up and tell people why you care about what you do and why they need to care about it too. Can you share with us some of your goals related to your work with Native youth, education, and activism? One of my goals with my work in the public education system is to help youth realize that they have a space in this work and also show them the opportunities they have to get involved. Growing up, I had a much different education than most people in the public education system. I went to school on the Hoopa Reservation. When I got to high school, my local history teacher and my Hoopa language teacher was my Hoopa medicine woman. So I was being taught the history of my tribe and my people and my own language in colonized school system. And so I grew up not realizing how bad the public education system was until I started working in it. And I realized that the curriculum that we use is entirely wrong. It is full of either lies about Native Americans or it completely writes Native Americans out of the picture, leading others to believe that we are remnant of the past and that we no longer exist. And so I definitely want to hold space in the public education system, especially in urban areas for Native students who have to deal with that, Native students who have to sit in a classroom they're forced to be in and learn about how their people no longer exist, or who have to learn about how their people were uncivilized and not able to survive if they had not been helped, which is entirely not the truth. Having to hear that in a public education system as a Native student is traumatizing And so I go into the classroom trying to hold space for those students and helping them remember that we are not a remnant of the past. We are a piece of today. Native students have, they have every right to be in a school system. They have every right to learn about their people and they have every right to just be a student. Native students shouldn't have to sit there and educate their educators and sometimes argue about the truth. It's really sad how many Native students have expressed to me, and I've even had this experience myself, of having a disagreement with a teacher regarding something that is 100% the truth in our case, and we have to argue with an educator to let them know that that is the truth, and sometimes they still don't want to believe us. There's been instances about having to take feathers off at graduation, 
having to play a pilgrim in a school play where there were Native Americans with fake feathers sticking out of their heads, where I was arguing about how bad the gold rush was, and they wanted to explain how good it was for the economy, when all I've ever known about that experience is that almost all Native women were assaulted and Native people were not people and that the government paid prices for our scalps. And so to hear that that was a good thing to happen in America is really hard. And so my hope is that with the public education system, we at SES can hold space for the students who have to hear things like that and then also help them engage and realize that they do have a voice And if they want to get more involved on changing the public education system, here's opportunities to do that too. And so I want to provide opportunities in the public education system that would not be there otherwise, whether that be to be involved in the environmental justice movement, the Native rights movement, the correction and transformation of public education, anything that those students can find meaningful that can encourage them to know that they too hold a place in public education and that they too belong there and that they too should go after whatever they want to do, whether it is be a doctor or a politician or a teacher and teach the correct curriculum, that those spaces are open for them because although the public education system does stem directly from boarding schools and the genocide of our people, it also holds a lot of power And we can use that power in order to create positive change for our people. I'm wondering how far along are you with your work to spread the curriculum throughout public schools? How's that going? And I'm imagining the goal is to go statewide. Where are we at in that process? Yeah, so the first curriculum that we created was called the Water Advocacy in Native California Communities Curriculum. That project is actually being implemented in the public education system as we speak. We've held several teachers' trainings trying to show teachers the correct way that this curriculum is meant to be taught and making sure that it's being taught in a super respectful way to Native students and non-Native students. And so that curriculum is actually in several school systems across the state of California as well as a lot of support from Humboldt County teachers, where we actually originate from. But it is going statewide right now. And I believe it is in above over 20 plus public schools in the state of California. At least that's how many teachers know how to use it and have that resource. And then there is the traditional and ecological knowledge curriculum that is being finished right now. It's pretty science-based. It revolves entirely around traditional and ecological knowledge from the Indigenous perspective, which is pretty much one of a kind in everything that I've seen in the public education system. And so that curriculum is still in the finishing stages. It was in for review and modules are being finished. We don't have an exact date for that release yet, but when it does, it'll be all over our social media and we will post teachers' trainings to also implement that across the state of California. I believe also there was a bill that passed recently that aims to expand more inclusive, less racist curriculum toward Native Americans. Can you speak a bit about that? Assemblymember James Ramos did author a bill that would hopefully make proper Native American curriculum 
available in all classes across California. That bill is still in process. Hopefully that will be implemented in about 2024. And so that is definitely a great step in the right direction. Assemblymember James Ramos is the first Native American legislator in the state of California. His involvement in this has been amazing. And we're really hoping that with that bill going forward, we'll be able to have resources like the curriculums that SES has created. It would be instrumental in making sure that the curriculum was not only centered around Native Americans, but also had tribal or Native American consultation so that it is done correctly. And so we're hoping that those will be resources that are readily available and those changes to the public education system will be made. Okay, we're going to take a quick music break. We have a song recorded by Mamie Preston Donahue and want to give a shout out to the Karuk Language Program. Hey, ho, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, I know. Hey, ho, I know. Thanks again, Mamie Preston Donahue, for sharing your music. And please check out the Carrick Language Program. We will leave some links in the description to find out more. So getting back to the interview, Danielle, I'm wondering what are your hopes for the future of youth activism and what changes would you like to see? Some of the main changes I would like to see with youth being so involved in the movement is for us to be actually given a seat at the table during the big conversations and not just to be an afterthought. It's definitely not easy, especially as a teenager. There's not a lot of people in the climate justice or environmental justice world, or almost any movement that want to take us super seriously. Yes, they want to have us on their media posts and they want to have us with the posters in front. But when it comes time to creating change and having conversations, it's very rare that a youth gets invited to that table. We should be getting the respect to be involved in these conversations. And the space could be made for youth opinions and big conversations, no matter what it is. When there's something regarding youth that needs to be fixed, nobody knows about the problems that youth face today better than us. So we should be involved in making those changes. And we have pretty good solutions considering that they are the problems that plague our lives, yet we don't get to be part of those conversations. People come to us after those conversations are had, after the solutions have been discussed, and ask us what we think about what they came up with but there's not a lot of time where they come to us and ask what we think about this. Everybody wants to be the person to fix the next generation, but nobody actually wants to listen to us. And so I think that can change. If we were to open the doors to our activists who are 16, 17, 18, 19, we can have leaders with 10 years plus experience at between 25 and 30 years old. We can be graduating with our master's and already have 10 years of experience in our field. That's something that should be available. Thankfully, Save California Salmon and 
Margot Robbins and Hoopa Valley High School and Hoopa Tribe have given me that opportunity to be involved. And so that's something that I thankfully will have. I will be 25 with 10 years of experience. Before I get my PhD, I will be considered an expert in my field. Hearing you talk, I'm wondering what would be your advice to folks who are environmentally minded, have aligned values with you, but don't have ancestry that's native to what's now known as the United States? How could folks be better allies and help this manifestation come into the world? So I think the main thing that can help someone who doesn't have like native ancestry to the United States could definitely be educating yourself. It might be hard if you are in the public education system, but there are definitely resources available today. Uh, Save California Salmon, Red Bud Resource Group. There are many things that are available, thankfully, to the internet. And it's really upsetting that they're going to have to contradict what they learn in public education system in order to get that proper education. But I think that's definitely the first step in being an ally is understanding who you're trying to help. And so getting that education regarding Native Americans and regarding the true history of America and regarding what actually happened to our people and Native tragedies and Native traumas were not lifetimes ago. They happen in this lifetime. And so being able to hold that space. And then if you do have the opportunity to reach out to a local Native community, a Native nonprofit, or a tribe, a rancheria, just starting that conversation of how you can help. It can definitely differ from region to region on what every tribe needs or what kind of assistance can be provided, but it's always there. And I think that the first step is making sure that you're coming at it with an educated point of view. And then on a further note, taking that education that you have and spreading that and helping other people understand what you have learned and helping your school understand why it was super upsetting that you had to go somewhere else to get a proper education and helping them understand how it's instrumental to get these curriculums involved into the public education system. So this ignorance of Native history can stop. It's not everybody's fault in the United States that not everybody knows about us. Misconceptions about Native Americans are not always the public's fault. The system that they're put into and forced to spend many hours of their life in is built upon the erasure of us. So helping us spread the word in our healing process, in us becoming an actual part of America, in America finding a way to make space for Native people rather than just taking everything from us time after time again. And that looks like talking to someone who makes those decisions at the school and explaining to them why you too, as a non-Native person, want to get this knowledge. If an educator is listening, how would they get access to this curriculum or where would they find these resources? Yeah, so I think if it's your first time hearing about the curriculum or even these problems in the education system, because not everybody talks about them, a good starting place would be the Save California Salmon Team. We have worked with a ton of school districts. And so as an educator, we have teachers trainings that are available Every three, four months, it kind of differs on the time in between. But those teachers' trainings are 
available to educators who want to implement our curriculum into their classrooms. And if they were hoping to do it on their own, they sign up for the teacher's education training, they get the curriculum, they learn about how we would teach it as Native people and what it's meant to be if they want to do it on a bigger scale. And they were to contact Save California Salmon and our education director, Charlie Reed, or myself, we could point them in the right direction in getting in touch with their school board and help show them the process of what it looks like to get that implemented. That's something that we've done before. If someone were to just send us an email with the Save California Salmon team, we could definitely point them in the right direction as of when the next teacher's training is, when the TEK curriculum will be out. If there's some youth who really want to get involved, we have opportunities for that. Okay, thanks for spelling that out. So building on all your work with the public schools and curriculum and expanding that throughout the state, I'm thinking about your work with Assembly Build AB 2022. Can you tell us what that's all about? Yeah, so AB 2022 was an Assembly Bill co-authored by Assemblymember James Ramos and Assemblymember Christina Garcia. Just a warning for listeners that this next part of the interview contains sensitive content. We discuss missing or murdered Indigenous persons and sexual assault. Please take good care of yourself, and if you need to step away, you can always come back and listen when you're ready. The objective of AB 2022 is to remove the S-word from public location spaces. And so if you don't know what the S-word is, feel free to look it up. I don't want to say that word in this space, but it is a derogatory term to dehumanize Native women. And it started when this place was a really bad place for Native American women and girls. It was dangerous and we were seen as almost not people minors and non-Native people who came to colonize America did not see Native women as respectable, so they would call them the S-word. And that has a long history of glorifying violence and abuse against Native women. And so for so many places in California to be named after that word, meaning to dehumanize a Native woman, using that word in sacred spaces such as waterways, as ancestral lands, as ski resorts, as valleys. It's not okay. The history of that word is glorifying genocide and glorifying murder and glorifying sexual assault and domestic violence. And so AB 2022 was co-authored with the hopes that we could remove the S word from California location names as a whole. And so it actually did go through. It was signed. And by 2024, that word will no longer be in use in the state of California. It definitely sends a message that Native women are to be respected. Native women are not to be seen as what a white man seen us as 200 years ago. And we deserve that. And so these words that took our people, our women, And these things that started our intergenerational trauma cycle, these words are not okay to use. And so some people might not think it's a very big deal, but to us, it is a big deal. To us, every time that word is said, it's a reminder of what happened. It's a reminder that 
in our great great grandma's lifetimes they dealt with the worst that you could deal with in this world that they were not seen as human they were not respected and they were given a term so that men could treat them however they wanted because they were an s word they were not a woman and so we don't deserve to go to a ski resort and be reminded of our traumas we don't deserve to go to a creek that means everything to our people and be reminded that we haven't always been people. It affects the way that we feel about ourselves. It affects the way that we are able to remember our ancestors. It affects the way that people look at us. If people do know the meaning of that word and they know that it's okay to be used in over a hundred places in the state of California, what does that say? There's a word that was coined specifically to perpetrate violence against Native women, and it's being used still today. And so that definitely feeds into the MMIW crisis, the murdered missing Indigenous women crisis. We are still the most preyed upon people in America. It is more likely that a Native woman goes missing or gets murdered than any other person or any other ethnicity, any other anything. Even though we make up the smallest percentage of the population, it's most likely that we go missing and we get murdered. And for my tribe, the Hoopa tribe, we make up 22% of murdered missing indigenous people in the state of California. Our reservation is 12 by 12 square miles. From that 12 by 12 square miles, 22% of the most people who go missing in the state of California is us. And so this is a problem that has directly affected my life. This is something that I grew up seeing. It wasn't uncommon that someone didn't have a mom because she went missing and never came home. It wasn't uncommon that everyone that you knew had been sexually assaulted because that's our reality. It wasn't uncommon that someone didn't have an older sister because they were murdered. That's something that we grow up with. I was actually in a room recently at the MMIP Tribal Policy Summit that the Yurok Tribe was hosting where someone asked if you're a Native person who has lost someone who has been murdered or missing, please stand up. Almost every person in the room stood up. That's not how everybody grows up. And this word, this S word, it encourages that. It encourages us to keep growing up with Native kids who watch people go missing and get murdered, and they don't think it's uncommon because for us it's not. So I definitely encourage people to... Learn the meaning behind the words that you're using. And if they are derogatory terms that are meant to dehumanize people, stop using them. Thanks for going into that and spreading awareness. I also want to ask you about the Vogue Climate Activist article that I saw you in and what motivated you to get involved and how is it related to water? The Vogue article was something very unique to my career so far. I definitely haven't ventured too far into the media aspect of the movement until now. And the goal of the Vogue project was to help shed some light and illuminate the issues that are happening in BIPOC communities across the United States specifically, but me in California for my people. I was a little wary about the project. I definitely have never been super comfortable in front of cameras or done anything with a $5,000 dress. Mainly what made me say yes is the fact that getting the story of my people and the fights that we fight into a space like Vogue could bring thousands more people into the fight. 
being involved in what we do, writing comments when we ask, making calls when we ask, even just educating themselves a little bit about Native Americans, spreading that education. And I think that projects like that can really make a difference. I think the more people who are empathetic about the issues Native communities face and the more people who actually know about them, the more people like that we have, the better it is for us. And so I said yes, because the issues that my people face deserve to have a light shed on them. And so during the project, the entire team I worked with was absolutely amazing. The collaboration was really there. I was never once that I felt like they were trying to tell a story and I was on the front page. It was more that they were trying to help me tell my story in a way that could be visually compelling as well. So that was really special. It definitely brought a lot more awareness to what we're doing up in Northern California. The huge media projects like that are important to the fight because the more people that we get involved, the less ignorant people, Native people have to deal with living in this world. That was my goal with the Vogue Project to help show that Native communities are still here, still fighting for our rights and our water, and that we won't ever stop and you know make space for us because of that. The article really did do that for me because specifically a lot of the issues that I was referring to in the article are water issues that my community faces. We spoke of the diversions. We spoke of the massive fish kills. We spoke of the cultural significance of salmon and the river to our communities. We were able to showcase the confluence where the Trinity and Klamath meet near the border of the Yurok Indian Reservation and showing how the health of one river directly affects the other and how that can correlate to people too. And we actually worked on a documentary at the same time. We are still working on that final edit. It's about 10 minutes and it really showcases while there are so many issues and traumas in Native communities, there's also like a beauty and a happiness and a humor that you won't ever find anywhere else. And so there definitely is a beauty in the midst of the madness is something that we were trying to capture. And we did. Can you tell us more about your attire and the images we see in the article and the incorporation of your traditional regalia in addition to the designer pieces? That was another thing that was really special about the project and the article for me was that while they were bringing these vintage dresses and all of these really expensive pieces, we were incorporating my regalia. We were incorporating my great-great-grandma's cap and my necklaces that my grandma and my auntie and I and Margot had made. And that meant a lot to me, my earrings. The cap that I was wearing was made by my three times great grandma, and it has been worn by some of the most influential women in my family. When you put it on, it tells a story of strength and it tells a story of culture and community. And weaving a cap like that takes so long. It tells a story of dedication and of gathering and community. And so that cap means a lot to me. It has designs on it that represent the familial and friendship ties that you make in this world and the way that it's continuous and always connected. It is made entirely of 
willows and hazel sticks and roots and woodpecker scalps and black fern and just really important things to our people that do need cultural fire in order to come back to us, replenish. They do need water in order for them to grow straight. They need our traditional and ecological practices in order to rejuvenate in the way that we need them. So that cap itself tells an entire story. And every time I wear it, I feel that community. I feel that strength of the matriarchs who came before me. I feel like one of those influential women who we're going to stand up and tell that story of what we need and why we need it. And then for the necklaces, I specifically chose the ones I did because they were made by me and my grandma and my great grandma and my great great grandma and Margot Robbins, my mentor, and just so many generations of strong native influential women who, who had a story to tell. And they told that through those necklaces. And now I wear them to tell that story alongside the necklaces that I've made. And then with the earrings, all of my earrings were made by family members who today in the, all the midst of the madness of the modern day world, they find time. They find time to create beauty out of the materials that were given to us. These materials, they're not something that we own. There's not the same idea of Western ownership as I sign a deed and this land is mine. It's more of an idea of I, I am of this land and this land is of me. And the way that we feel about our home is like a family member. The way that I've watched the river and environment around me die, the way that I've grown up, feels like I'm slowly losing a piece of my family and a piece of who I am. And so when all of that is gone, who are we going to be? And so the environmental justice fight isn't just clean drinking water and clean water. It's, it's a complete cultural identity our environment is who we are. And so we fight for not only a clean waterway because that's the right thing to do. We fight to be who we are because without those things, we will not. Thank you for sharing that. So going back to the documentary you were talking about, is that also the Tacala Project? Where can folks find more about that? Yeah, so it is part of the Tacala Project. The Vogue article near the bottom had a teaser of the documentary the rest of the documentary, I believe, is going to be in some film festivals. The documentary is called Abalonias, which in Hoopa is Osahona, which is actually my Hoopa name. So it's really special for that to be the title. In closing, I'm wondering what's next for you and where people can go to learn more about you and your work. Yeah. So what's next for me? I will be focusing on school and continuing college. I will be continuing to be the youth coordinator for Save California Salmon. I will also be going to the United Nations Climate Conference come November, where November 15th, I will be helping give a formal presentation about the dangers of hydroelectric dams to the United Nations. And I will be just trying to hold as much space for Native youth in the environmental justice movement, in the world, in everyday life, and continuing my efforts to make this world more inclusive for Native people. Definitely, you can catch up with me and my work through Save California Salmon social medias. Through my social media, I share a lot of my work on there. And, you know, my contact information 
will be found through State of California Salmon. I'm always around to help others further their knowledge too and find out how to get more involved. We're so appreciative of you giving us this interview. Thank you. I just want to ask if there's anything else you'd like to share that's present for you in the moment. My closing message could just be straight to the Native youth. You do matter and you are here for a reason and you totally belong in every space that you want to be in. And if you need any help feeling like that, reach out to me. I'm on a personal level. I'm always available for especially res kids who need a little bit of help. I was one of those kids and I found some really amazing mentors that helped me get involved in this work and helped me find a place in this world. And I am always open to helping other Native youth find that person or even grow into being that person myself. And so just a reminder to Native youth that you matter. You deserve to be here. You deserve to be in every space that you're in. And if you need any help getting to where you want to be next, I'm here. There are other people here. Continue to be strong. Remember that although there is traumas in life that we are born with, there's also strength and resilience that comes alongside that. And just hold that close to your heart. And to everybody else who's listening, who's not a Native youth, I thank you for hearing my perspective. And I hope to collaborate in the future. Thank you again. We wish you well, Danielle. And I'm sure this won't be the last time we'll be speaking with you. That was Danielle Frank from the Hoopa Valley Tribe. Thank you, Danielle. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.